0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative. And today we're going to be talking a bit about rail and rail transport funding. So you'll probably have noticed uh, well, a, a few delays caused by people who are gluing themselves to the roads in support of there being greater f- government funding for rail. And I was curious, uh, how do we even know whether this would work? Is rail in New Zealand on a sound footing financially? What are the institutional structures like? Is this something where we could just throw more government money at it and expect everything to work well, or are there structural problems that might need to be solved first? So when I encounter a puzzle like this when it comes to transport, I always want to have a chat with Scott Wilson, who's our guest today. So Scott is an international transport consultant. He does projects all over the place looking at transport, transport funding, structures. And he's here with us today to talk a little bit about how our rail network works or fails to. Good afternoon, Scott. Thank you very much, Eric. So... The transport advocates seem to really want a giant boost to rail funding so that we could have, well, not just within city services, but also lots of intercity services. Is it completely nuts to expect that this kind of thing could work or is it feasible over some reasonable timeframe?
1: Well, I think we've got to start by thinking about what is rail good at in New Zealand. And New Zealand has historically had a fairly sound rail freight network. And the rail freight task done today is actually greater than it was 30 years ago. If you look at some of the records of what the railways put out about 1979, 1980, they were hauling something like a third of the freight tonne then that is hauled now. So freight is a, a good part of the rail business. And the type of freight that works in New Zealand is containerized and bulk commodities over long distances. It works well. It works with forestry, milk, coal and, and the like. So that part of the business is fairly sound. On long parts of the network, such as Wellington to Auckland, from Tauranga to, to Auckland, those those parts of the other network work very well. On the passenger side, the parts that work well in New Zealand have been commuter trains in Wellington, which have been around for a very long time. Wellington had a well-funded network from the 30s through to the 50s. And Auckland in the last 20, 25 years has had a significant increase in funding for its networks it has a fairly well functioning network when it runs for commuter rail as far as passenger rail elsewhere is concerned I mean, new zealand had a lot of passenger trains over the last century or so and it was the was a main way of getting around the country but it fell into you know less and less use over time for a number of reasons and one of them simply is that it's pretty slow the topography of the country and the rail network that was built in the 19th and 20th century was not well suited to going at particularly high speeds. And governments over, over many years made a decision not to do very much about that in most cases because when the we get to the post-war period in the 1950s and 60s, there were other technologies that, that, that came along that frankly the public preferred. You know, the government put money into airports and domestic aviation and we have a very you know, well-functioning a domestic airline network, and the highways were improved, they were sealed, and people owned more cars, and for the population we had at the time, you know, waiting all day to get a train to go between, you know, one place to another, was something that increasingly fewer people wanted to do, and they were slow, and it would be fair to say for a long time the railways as a government department did not run passenger trains that were particularly comfortable. Air conditioning didn't appear in to any trains until the 1970s, and in fact Right up until the late 1980s, we had passenger trains that operated long distances that had to stop for refreshments at a station. You'd have to get out and go for a rush to the cafeteria and then pick up a pie and a cup of tea and then go back on the train. Now, that's not how, you know, good long distance passenger trains work in other countries, so it'd be fair to say that the railways themselves weren't very keen on passenger trains from the 50s and 60s, so as they got less comfortable, more people drove, more people flew, and it just became one of those things that people didn't do. Now we still have a few trains that are tourist services, such as the Transalpine people know about, Transcoastal one, and there's one from Wellington to Auckland for scenery. They take a long time to do those trips and they're good for scenery. To make those faster trips for more, I think, regular intercity travel would require an unbelievable amount of money to make those trains a lot faster and more frequent. And there'd be questions about whether that's going to work there. Now, there may be questions about shorter distances. The government is putting a lot of money into new trains between here and Palmerston North, Wellington and Palmerston North, and the Wairarapa. There's a trial called Tehuia between Hamilton and Auckland which is mixed experiences. It seems to be carrying quite a few people, literally with half-price fares at the moment. So there is experimentation going on there, but the idea you could have a transformational change and we'd have significant portions of the population travelling from, say, Wellington to Auckland by by rail instead of flying, when it's 11 hours by rail now, it probably couldn't be better than seven hours or eight hours if you poured billions into it, compared to a one-hour flight. It, it, It seems fanciful.
0: So there's a few things that I've picked up here. One, the image of historic rail in New Zealand is not quite as rosy as I've often been led to believe. We hear these pictures from rail advocates about how wonderful things used to be and how it would be great to get back to that. What you're describing sounds not very fun at all, and you wouldn't want to go back to that. But the other thing that struck me was, well... KiwiRail Rail's a straight, state-owned enterprise. They should be profit-seeking in some sense. And if there really were this latent demand for a lot more rail service, you would expect that they'd have every incentive to try and provide the service so long as it's cost-effective, that they're not doing it. Unless something else is weird in how they're, how they're funded and financed, if they're not providing the services, it's probably signaling something about actual latent demand for it. I,
1: I think... Part of it is around latent demand. They they got new passenger rolling stock around about 10 or so years ago. The the, the previous government put money into replacing the trains. They obviously ordered the number that they wanted at the time. And if, if there was a push to have more, you'd expect them to be incentivized to do that. And certainly in the early 90s, you know, when rail was recapitalized, there was an expansion of services. The then uh, government-owned NZ Rail before it was privatised reintroduced services to tauranga and Rotorua. And you know, they ran for about 10 years and then they proved not to be worth c- continuing at the time. But the incentives, I think you're right, there are some issues around the incentives. Kiwi Rail makes more money out of freight and it likes to preserve the slots for freight and the freight trains make them more money than passenger rail. Now, it's a monopoly rail provider, it provides the infrastructure, it also provides the trains. We don't quite have the transparency there as to whether someone else might be willing to run some of these services. If KiwiRail simply says, no, we want to preserve these slots for a future freight train service or a freight train we want to run at this time or another time, because KiwiRail makes more money out of freight than it does out of maintaining the infrastructure. Of course, what's happened with the funding for the infrastructure has changed quite significantly in the last few years. KiwiRail now pays track user charges to Waka Katahi. I mean, say in many ways the same as my trucking company pays road user charges. So it pays these charges which have been agreed with government and Waka Katahi gets the money and it just goes into the pot of funding for the National Land Transport Program. And then the government decides through the GPS the Government policy statement as to what money goes into rail and to other areas, and the government then gives them money for rail. But the linkage between running trains and getting that revenue isn't really there. So, KiwiRail Rail gets more money from Waka than it puts into it. That's that's you can pretty much take that for granted. So, if there were more other companies wanting to run trains on the Kiwi Rail's network, what would it get from doing that? Well, it wouldn't get anything, uh, it wouldn't get necessarily any additional money, it just has. Trains operating on its network, and it would wait to get money from Waka for maintaining the network. So th- there's that. Whereas, if you had a track infrastructure business running like a b- business would, you'd say, Oh, I want anybody to run trains. I want as many trains to run as possible that I can make the most money out of the network and maximize the utilization of the network. And that incentive doesn't really appear to be there at the moment. They do report a separate above rail and a below rail businesses. And, and what operates there, but the incentives aren't there for them to encourage more use of that network. Their incentives are to run freight trains.
0: Okay, so if I've understood this right, in the same way that we get problems where like road users and road user charges and petrol excise all get thrown into the National Land Transport Fund, which is just this big slurry bucket, and then money comes out of that bucket and like folks like the taxpayers union worry about whether... The amount of money paid by road users is roughly on par with the amount of money that gets spent on the roads. There's a similar problem with rail where the user fees for using the rails get thrown into the bucket and then it gets sloshed around and some money comes back out for rail maintenance, but there's no proper linkage between these. Government could decide with swinging pendulums on whether they like roads this week or whether they like rail this week, and it's just hard to keep it clear.
1: I think that's right. And I do wonder whether this structure is one of the causes for the issues going to happen in Auckland, where parts of the network will be shut down for you know, significant rehabilitation and reconstruction. Because again, the same thing happens in Auckland, where KiwiRail owns the network. It doesn't run the trains. The trains are owned by Auckland Transport. They are operated by a contractor at Auckland Transport, and it pays track user charges to Waka Katahi, in effect, for running those trains. So KiwiRail isn't really penalised for having parts of the network shut down to run trains on it. In the direct financial sense, it becomes, it's it's just a bit of a blurred set of incentives there. Whereas if you were directly dependent upon your money based on the trains operating, you might change your practices in terms of how you maintain the network. It would be interesting to see how they might react to that if they were much more dependent upon the operation of the trains for the revenue on that part of the network than the current situation.
0: Again, just so that I've understood this right, in a sensible setup or one that your first intuition of how would you set all of this up, somebody would be owning the track. They would be getting track user fees from people that are using the track to the extent that they provide a good set of tracks with lots of people using it, they get a lot more money, and they would then be pretty reluctant to do something like shut down the track for extended periods of time because they would stop stop getting these user fees from people who are using their tracks. What we've got instead is really blurred links between usage of the tracks because the money actually just winds up coming out of whatever the heck the government decides they want to pay for Rails this week, so if you shut things down for a while, well, yeah, the users are inconvenienced, but those charges are separated from the money that you get for running the track.
1: That's pretty much That's pretty much right. That's and, nuts. And, and look, the money that's being put into the Auckland network is justified. Now, there is a long history of Auckland Rail where governments have decided over many decades basically to run down Auckland commuter rail. That, that was happening from the 50s right through to the 1980s. There were several points where it almost was going to be shut down. So you can see why the money put into the network when it was a government department was enough to keep it going. And there's a backlog of maintenance of the network. We've got a very different city now. We've got a city where where growth of passenger rail is very, very important to the growth of that city. And there's a backlog and stuff needs to be done. But you don't want to do it in, in, in a sense to say, well, actually – we're not gonna allow parts of the network to operate on a on a day to day basis for months on end so that people say, Well, I don't want I can't rely on the trains, I'll get in my car or bus or even relocate. It's it's actually it's gonna be very important to Auckland to have a very well functioning and well capitalized network. But the structures we have at the moment are clearly not ideal.
0: So within Auckland then, who is it that runs the trains for commuters?
1: Auckland Transport contracts a private contractor, whose name escapes me at the moment, to be the train operator.
0: Okay, so KiwiRail owns the underlying track. They get some money from the government through opaque processes. Auckland Transport decides on what the service levels are going to be on that track, collects the money from that, but pays a fee for the track usage, which then may or may not go to KiwiRail, depending on what the government's preferences are.
1: That's, pr- that's pretty much right. Auckland Transport collects the fares, it gets the subsidies both from you know, Auckland rate payers through Auckland Council and Waka Kotahi for operating passenger rail services. So there's a bit of a, a roundabout there whereby the money comes from fare paying passengers, comes from Waka Kotahi and Auckland Council. They pay the train operator that then pays for the track fees, they use Kiwi Rail for Waka Kotahi to get track user charges to then pay Kiwi Rail to maintain the network.
0: How did we wind up in this kind of a mess of an organisation?
1: So if we go, when Auckland Transport was set up and Auckland Council was set up to try and consolidate transport governance in Auckland, and Auckland Transport and Council were given the trains of the Auckland Rail Network, and they were also given the the infrastructure, the, the stations, not the track infrastructure. So Auckland Transport owns stations in Auckland, almost all of the railway stations in Auckland. So we had that set up and they were contracting their operator to operate their trains in the network. And initially KiwiRail would get paid for that, would get paid the track access charges for its network because KiwiRail owned the network and the government had bought it for them. What happened in the last few years was the government decided, I think it was in 2019, that they would try to have a level playing field between road and rail, and the way of doing this wasn't to fix the issue that at the moment road user charges are kind of not only very vaguely linked to, to road use and paying for the network, but to put rail on the same footing as roads. So track user charges were set up. There was a process whereby the government decided what track user charges should be, and they are below the cost of providing the network. And the track user charges would go into the National Land Transport Fund, like road user charges, fuel excise and motor vehicle uh, registration fees. And Waka Katahi would be responsible for allocating funding based upon the government's rail funding plan. So it would be doing funding for roads and rail, and there'd be one bucket of money, but the buckets of money and how much would be determined would be decided by the government as part of the government policy statement process. And the objective to do that, you can see, is well meaning that you want to have a level playing field between road and rail, particularly for freight, but it seems you know, skewed the wrong way. I mean, there, there was there was attempt in the 1990s to have a level playing field by putting roads on a commercial footing and to have a, a structure where you'd have road companies and they could then charge trucking companies directly for using the roads and they'd have to make a profit. And back at the time, the railways had to make a profit and you could see some something going on there. Now, there wasn't perfect and there were issues with rail at the time, which I, I won't go into, but the idea of having track user charges is seems esoteric. It's it's I haven't seen a jurisdiction anywhere else in the world that that has a a land transport fund for roads that also gets the money from track user charges and then dishes that money out to the infrastructure provider. I, I haven't seen it anywhere else, so I'm not sure how how this concept even came to be.
0: On this on the separation between KiwiRail as track owner, operator, maintainer, and then potential provider of rail services also. How does that fare internationally? Like we see in Europe, trains that seem pretty successful, other places. Is it common for the person who, or the company that owns the tracks and maintains them to also be the ones providing the freight or passenger services on those rails? Or is that a little idiosyncratic to us?
1: Well, the, the vertical integration of, of both the, the operating the trains and operating the track was the norm. This was the norm throughout Europe, is the norm in Australia, and what's happened is that jurisdictions have increasingly separated them. So you'll see in in Australia there are there's there's a rail track business, and then there are competing you know freight rail freight companies operating there. Now Australia has characteristics that lend itself to to there being competing rail freight companies. It doesn't have either the topography or the loading gauge, not track gauge, issues, which is uh, you don't have low bridges and tunnels that restrict how high you can and how wide your rolling stock is, like you have in New Zealand in a lot of cases. And you have distances and volumes of freight that, that absolutely dwarf what, what you see on rail freight in New Zealand. So Australia has gone down the path of, of separating out the infrastructure from from the operators. And I'd say that's been fairly successful. In some cases, not formally separated, it's more of an accounting separation and there's some sort of you know, at a lower level and, and Queensland I understand has that where it's not they're not they're not completely separated. But it's become a, a more common practice to do that. Partly to have competition in rail. I think there's probably a fairly big question about how much competition you'd really get in rail in New Zealand on freight and passenger. There might be a little bit on the margins. But also the transparency around are you subsidizing infrastructure, or are you going to subsidize operations? And are you going to get innovation in one sector or the other? And to try and, and I think there's probably a case to, to seriously think about how you might do that in New Zealand. Whether you have a a holding company that basically looks after rail, but you say, look, we've got a track business and we've got a, a rail freight operating business, maybe have a intercity passenger operating business, which isn't very big. But to just have them, yeah, you know, the, the operating businesses going out, say, look, we'll, we'll try and get as much freight as we can, as much passenger business as we can. And you see that in Europe. I mean, Austria is one I I cite on roads. But the the rail sector has been split up into various companies. So the passenger business operates on its own. It does its thing. It gets subsidies for certain services from the government, quite transparency, but it pays the infrastructure business for using the network. And the infrastructure business runs on its own. If government wants to put a lot of money into the infrastructure business for a particular capital project, it will do that transparently. But by and large, the system can sustain itself and you've got this transparency about where the money is going and where it's being spent. And at the moment, it's, it's it's just a bit too opaque and I think some of the incentives just aren't, aren't as good as they could be.
0: So what would reform along those kinds of lines look like in New Zealand? Would it be the intercity rail owned by one outfit and then the local networks within a city owned by a separate outfit? Would it all be under integrated ownership and then with that separation, you've got... Potentially different providers competing for freight and commercial traffic. What, what would it look like here? I look,
1: I, I think here you'd have you'd have one infrastructure provider. I, I don't think you want to split up the infrastructure because there were arguments. In fact, when Auckland Auckland Regional Council wanted to buy the Auckland commuter rail network around twenty odd years ago, and was negotiating with Transrail, then the private owner, to do that, and the government stopped that and said, "No, we'll buy it." And the reason why is they did not want the commuter trains in Auckland to be shutting out freight. They were concerned that Auckland would run lots of commuter trains and at peak times in particular there wouldn't be slots for freight trains and it was an integral part of a national network. So I think there is a case to say we have one national freight network and look, we've got one state highway network. So you can make that. You can make that case. As far as the trains on that network are concerned, you could have a rail freight business a small intercity passenger rail business, and we've got the Auckland and Wellington commuter rail operations, which are owned by the relative local authorities, operating their own separate businesses as well. And that seems like a a fairly reasonable structure to start off with. I I don't think you'd want to split it out any other ways. You might ask questions about railway stations outside the commuter centres, but that's all the detail that can be worked out later.
0: Neat. And the other thing that you'd mentioned was, okay, so Auckland Council owns the train stations in Auckland. Now, I I hadn't understood that part properly. How much land are we talking about here? Because just the reason that I'm asking, I know that in part... Japan's rail network has been able to be so successful because the rail company owns the land where they're going to be putting up new train stations. They get the value uplift from that property when they decide to improve facilities, and that helps them to finance things. So is it kind of land that is well amenable to throwing a 30-story apartment tower on top of it, which could then fund an upgrade of the rail network underneath, or is it just kind of useless land?
1: Well, there is land like that. I mean, this you'd have to say that there will big stations where there is potential for that. And to be fair, Newmarket Station in Auckland, a lot of the land around that has already been developed, so you can start to see see that happening there. But there should be more of that. And look, there's there's all sorts of complications around railway land, I and mean, some of it's taken the Public Works Act, some of it gets subject to Treaty of Waitangi claims, and and how you handle that. But yeah, absolutely there should be the potential to do that, and in Wellington as well. I mean, all of the railway stations in Wellington, except for Wellington Railway Station, which is owned by KiwiRail, are actually regional council assets. So you'd have to start thinking, well, shouldn't Johnsonville Railway Station potentially be a site where you could develop that? Well, maybe. Why isn't it being done? Well, regional council probably doesn't think housing is particularly important to that. But you'd start to think that surely something around the incentives around that ownership should be around commercial development, and I'm I'm not sure the incentives are that good to do that. As, as you said, there are other parts. I mean, we have they go through Tawa, they go through the Hutt Valley, Waterloo Station, is, is a big station that was developed as a transport interchange in the late 1980s. You know, surely, if that's a good be a hub, you could do more around there. But
0: but nobody's doing it. No. Well, this has been fascinating. I can sympathize. Well, okay, I don't, I can't sympathize with the people who glue themselves to the road. They're, they're really annoying. But I can sympathize with wanting to have a better functioning rail network. And it seems to be a much bigger problem than just throwing money at it. It seems that there are deep structural institutional issues in how we've got the ownership of the track and its operation set up. So if we were looking to have a better footing for all of it in future, looking at those institutional structures might be a better idea. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been really interesting.
1: Thank you, Eric.